0: All right. So we're continuing with the topic of uh, outreach and the Lutheran pro- approach to outreach and how we understand that. And I want to clarify and clear the air on a number of issues and misconceptions and other ideas that people have about outreach, these sort of things. Uh, so this next chapter part is on motives and approach. And I think this is very, very important because we have to understand what we're talking about. Get this right before doing anything. And motives is what what your intention is. So just to give some context here, uh, there has been a decline in church membership uh, in the United States. In 1937, Gallup took uh, their, their polls and they found that 73% of people were members of a church and regularly attended. So they would come to church regularly, uh, show up every Sunday. This is excluding people who show up on Christmas and Easter, things like this. Uh, people who, who came faithfully. In 2000, in the year 2000, there was 70%. So a 3% uh, decrease from 1937 to the year 2000. In 2010 it went down to 61%. Uh, They're they're following this. In 2020, what do you think it was? 47%. uh, Below 50%. This is the first time in the Gallup poll here in the United States that church membership went below 50%. Right. There's a lot of different theories as to what's going on here and what's happening. Uh, churches don't emphasize church membership anymore. People just hop around. They cause a ruckus at one congregation. And instead of staying there and forgiving and repenting, they just jump up and go to the next congregation. And so membership doesn't matter. Uh, others just kind of uh, brush it aside. And because of they practice open communion, then who's technically a member, who's not. Some people have membership in m- multiple places. So there, there's a number of theories going on, but the, the bottom line is that loyalty to a congregation, a church, one, to say this is mine, and um, I'm yours and you're mine, that has gone down for, for whatever reason. Uh, as a result of this, what, what else declines? We have church offerings decline. Uh, church attendance declines, involvement, volunteers, and all of these things decline. And it's a vicious cycle because once the church attendance declines, then the support for the pastor to be able to live declines. And the pastor tends to leave or he can't uh, be a pastor anymore. And then the church has trouble calling another pastor. And then it just, it's a spiral right? And they just uh, end very quickly. So this is typically the point at which churches begin to talk about evangelism and outreach, right? So they'll, they'll quote these, statist- these statistics and say, all right, now it's time to talk about outreach. Do you see how bad the problem is? That's, that should get a, a, a fire burning in you to say, we got to stop this. Uh, they consider this typically not when the church is growing, but when the church is shrinking. So, <clears throat> for example, um, in a local congregation, one specific congregation, uh, those congregations start to begin to think about outreach once the numbers are declining. Right? So once you see the pews empty, say, well, there are not many people here. There, there were more people here last year than there were this year. We have to, what? What? We got we to get them saved, right? We got to uh, do outreach. We got to get get on this. Um, and rarely do churches talk about this when uh, they're growing, when they're growing. Because at that point, they're saying, well, it's working, so let's just not bother ourselves with this. Uh, which is why I decided to do this at this point. Talk about outreach at this point. When we're growing and not when we're shrinking. For, for seven years, we had... Uh, uh, so many things. When I first got here, we had 20, um, 20 people in the church, and my goal was to not talk about outreach to them, but to talk about Jesus, <laughs> to teach them theology, and they rejoiced. And then the church grew. But now, now that we're growing, and look, we have a building and it looks great, uh, now I want to clarify the, the motive here and say this is the time that we should talk about outreach. And what I want to say is that there's two motives for outreach. So let me write this down quickly. There are selfish motives and selfless motives. A selfish motive is this. You see the church attendance decline. And so you want to engage in outreach to get more people here. Uh, the, you see the finances dwindle. Then you say, well, we got to fix that. So let's get more people here. So the finances are back on track. So uh, the, the, a selfish motive would be to increase the finances or more people or friendship to say, look, there's not many people here or many people my age or whatever it might be. So let's get more people in here so we can make more connections, things like this. Uh, or events, like we want our events to be exciting. If we have a, a cookout, we don't want four people to show up. We want 90 people there and you know, beer flying all over the place. Everybody's happy. So we, we want that excitement and that thrill. Uh, but this, these things are for worldly and temporal gain. Do you see this? So that the church, the congregation is saying, well, we want to grow because of us, so that it would benefit us. Where the, the right reason is a selfless reason, that the right motive ought to be selfless. That 1 Timothy 2, 4 says, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And if God desires that, then we ought to desire that, Right? Uh, so, um, here, here's, a, here's a quote from the book, uh, Be at Leisure. He says, do we think of outreach because we can't bear the thought of people going to hell? Or do we think of outreach because we are concerned for ourselves and our own churches? We have to clarify that motive first. I'll, I'll give you one anecdote here. When I was, I probably shouldn't say the name, but... Sometime in my life, there was a church that I was at for a time, and it started to decline. The demographics changed of that church. So at first, it was a German-speaking neighborhood, and then it was a um, Slovak-speaking neighborhood, and then it was a Mexican-speaking neighborhood, and then it started to turn into a black uh, neighborhood. Uh, and so the, that one church was in the same place through, through these changes. And it was at the point where it was changing from Slovak to Mexican, and, and the demographic was shifting, uh, that they said, we need to do outreach. Uh, but it was so that they could keep their church, their building. They said, well, there's all these new people here, so let's kind of uh, learn Spanish so that we could bring them in. Uh, and the motive there wasn't... The purest. It wasn't the best. It was that we need to get people in here to help save our building. And I pointed out to them, I said, well, here's one problem. A number of, of these uh, Mexicans, they're, um, they're immigrants, and they've either come here legally or illegally, but they don't know English very well, and which means they're probably not going to have high-paying jobs, and they're not going to be the ones to solve your financial problems. And then at that point, they didn't really want to do this anymore. <laughs> that's bad. That's really bad. Uh, and and I actually gave a presentation on this on missions there. And I said, look, it should be that you can't bear the thought to see these people lost. These people need Jesus. Uh, and even if they can't contribute to anything in the church, they need Christ. That, that's the motive. That's the right motive. And then, fine. We're going to figure this out. We'll have to sell the building. We'll have to, whatever. We'll figure it out. We'll find a place, and we'll meet. But the reason, the motive, we ought to talk to these people and learn Spanish and do these things, is to, um, is so that they would be converted and learn, learn of Christ. So, there's two great temptations that come in the midst of like a shrinking church. So, the first is insecurity, and the second is fear. Uh, So insecurity, so the source of insecurity comes from uh, this, that it's it's a tension between what we expect the church to look like versus what the church actually looks like. So there's a tension there, and so we say, well, I have an idea of what it ought to be, and then I look, and I don't see that idea, and so there's an insecurity that uh, comes upon people. So we're insecure about what it looks like. if you know this, if people who are insecure constantly change who they are, um, what they wear, what they do based on other people's views of them and things like this. Um, they'll, they'll, they don't want to offend anybody. They want to cater to people. Uh, and I want to explain this a little bit more. about. I want to talk about what the church should look like. And cl- uh, rectify that first before we talk about anything else. <laughs> Have you guys heard of the distinction between the theology of glory and the theology of the cross? Yes, okay. The theology of glory is what? Can somebody tell me? Yes, everything is is awesome. Like the Lego movie um, that's sung. I didn't watch it on my own. My son watched it, so I'm not, I'm not weird, no. <laughs> um, so the, the church is, the theology of glory is that uh, everything ought to be glorious, exactly like, like you said. So the church is victorious. The church is glorious. It it's ought to be filled to the brim. Uh, there ought to be you know, happiness and joy, and there's no problems going on. Uh, there's, there's movement and excitement. And so that's the idea of a glorious church. And then there's a theology of the cross, which is what we are as Lutherans, uh, that they're suffering as a Christian. And that in the Christian life, it's not going to look nice. Um, and so what we see is that the church is kind of uh, looks pathetic oftentimes. And it looks weak and small and um, like it's, it's not going to make it like it's impoverished right in the side of the world. That's what the church will look like a lot of the times, uh, many of the times. But the point is, is that in the theology of the cross is that the church is victorious, even in the midst of shame, even while it's hidden beneath sadness and persecution, boredom, things like this. Uh, Even in dwindling numbers, the church is, is growing. Uh, if, If you can believe it. So, Jesus himself tells us what the church will look like. So I'm not making this up. We get this straight from the scriptures. We say, well, what is the church supposed to look like? John 3, uh, 19 through 20, Jesus says, and this is the judgment. The light himself has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come to the light, lest his work should be exposed. Is the church going to be loved by the world? No. Is it going to be liked by the world? No. Uh, John 16, 2. They will, he's talking about the church, they will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering service to God. Well, why are they putting them out of the synagogues? It's not because they're uh, disruptive in the service or things like this. It's because of doctrine. That's why they're being kicked out. That The day is coming. Well, you see this in church splits. That people who confess the truth and say, well, this is what the scriptures say. This is what the Bible says. And they're cast out of the church. The church split over that. And... This is a prophecy that's happening before our very eyes. I, I think recently, what was it, the Methodist church just split? Um, Steve would know, this. Do you know this. Yeah, so they split on what marriage is and what if male and female is. On that, on what God says it is. And so they split over this thing. Um, uh, th- and th- they're put out of the synagogues for holding to what the Bible says. First uh, John 3.13, it says this. Don't be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. It's, it's, not even, it's not even that the world doesn't love us. It's that they hate us. It's not that they, they're, they're indifferent or apathetic to churches and the, and the word of God. It's just they don't want you to say it. They hate when you speak it, which is why people lose their jobs when they speak these things and when they assert, hey, a man is a man, men are males, males are men, women are female." And then they lose their job for, for this. Uh, John fifteen eighteen. If the world hates you, remember that it hated me first. If you were of the world, it would love you as its own. Instead, the world hates you because you're not of the world. But I have chosen you out of the world. Therefore, the world hates you. In other words, the problem here or the point is that the church is not going to look as glorious and successful as people want it to look like it's going to look not very uh, successful. But the comfort is that Jesus, too, was despised and lowly. And yet, he accomplished our salvation while he was poor and lowly. Uh, he, and he will accomplish the salvation of, of those who would believe in him, of his elect, through his church, even when the church is despised and lowly when the church looks small and impoverished and useless and worthless to the world. That is when God is accomplishing his work. Um, I want to read you this, this uh, quote, a, a, a paragraph here from the text. <coughs> it's really good. And it explains why the church isn't desperate to try and win the favor of the world, right? As a church, we're not saying, we're not surveying the community and saying, well, what do you guys want to see in a church? What what kind of things? They don't don't know. They didn't know what the church is. I I can tell you what the church... Look at what Jesus said. This is what you need. I know you don't feel that you need this, but you need this. You need the forgiveness of sins more than anything, more than you need bread and air. You need the forgiveness of sins. And I can show you. We can all show you. This is what the scriptures say. So, but the problem is if, if we... Take this mentality of, well, in order to get the strangers of the world here in this church and convert them, then we gotta make the church palatable to them. So what do we do? Well, a lot of those surveys come back and say, you guys are too judgmental. What does that mean? What, like, we can't talk about sin at all. Um, you guys are, the service is stuffy and boring. Well, you don't know it. You don't know it. The service is deeply meaningful. It's beautiful. It's the most exciting thing. If you knew what was going on. So uh, this is the analogy I oftentimes use. Um, uh, Avengers Endgame. Right? You, you guys see this movie? <laughs> uh, that I did watch on my own. Martin didn't do. Um, so you, I don't expect you to just walk into that, the theater and watch that movie, sit down, and understand what's going on. See, like, oh, he picked up a hammer. Woohoo! Right? But... Everybody else is cheering and saying, that's awesome. Yes, this is the... they, they, they look at the different parts of the, the movie. Well, that's because Avengers Endgame is number 22 in a, movie, in a long list of 22 movies. It's the last one. So you have to watch all 21 first, and then you watch this. And then you'll understand there's the connection. So the same thing with the liturgy. I don't expect somebody to walk off the street into the church and say, oh, I know why you sing the Nunc Dimittis. I know what that is. They don't know what that is. Well, why do we sing at the end of the service? Well, I can, we can tell you. Simeon sang that before he died and he held the baby Jesus. And then he says, now, now that I've seen him, this infant, I haven't even seen him speak or do anything, but now that I've seen his face, I can die in peace. And that's why we sing that every, at the end of every service. You have seen Jesus, you've received him in his body, and his blood. You've you've beheld him. You've held him in a way more dear and more closely than Mary held him. The way you've held him in the Lord's Supper, you've you've had the Lord in the Lord's Supper, is closer than even the the Virgin Mary held him in in her womb. Even more than than, uh, Simeon. Because, um, yeah, I I won't get off on, on that too much. But the point is that Christ is here and he dwells with you in this beautiful way. Uh, but I don't expect people to just automatically know this, right? So if we're going to change and tailor the service, we have to get rid of all these things to cater to the world that the world doesn't even know what to ask for or what to pray for. Okay, here's, here's the point, that in this insecurity, churches try to revamp themselves, and we shouldn't. Here's the paragraph. The church is not a desperate girl waiting to be asked out on a date, She's no hussy who has to lower her neckline or hike up her skirt and smear her cheeks. uh, What is this? Rouge? Yeah, with rouge. I don't know what that is. Uh, Okay, whatever that is you put on your face, apparently that's a thing Um, in an effort to get a man, which only which. So so the women who dress like this, his point is which only attracts all the wrong kinds of attention from uh, from the world. Rather, the church is taken and the church has betrothed herself to Jesus forever. And she is glorious, a glorious church, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing. Not because the world has lent her its trappings, but because Christ has presented her to himself in splendor. The king has married his wife. The world may see her as Cinderella sitting in the ashes, but she is nevertheless the queen of the universe. In short, the church is not the world's prostitute, but Christ's bride. And so we rest secure in him. That's beautiful. So that the church ought to be confident in what, not trying to gain the favor of the world, but just be confident, just confess. Say, well, this this is what we are. This is what the service is. And uh, I'll teach you. If you don't care to learn, then okay. I, I can't force anybody to learn anything. So that's the first thing is in the midst of insecurity, people do kind of silly things. The second thing is fear. <clears throat> uh, the source of the fear comes from doubting Jesus' words. When Jesus says that the church will endure forever. People think here that Jesus won't take care of the church. So that means what? We have to. We have to take care of the church. God, won't, God, he's not taking care of us, but we're going to take it into our own hands. Look at what Jesus himself says in Matthew 16. He tells his, this to his, uh, his uh, apostles or his disciples at the time. He says, I will build my church. I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Um, who builds the church? Only Christ. And how does he do it? On the proclamation of the gospel. And that's how he builds his church. Uh, Article 8 or Article 7 of the Augsburg Confession on the church says this, and it's a beautiful line. It says, our churches teach that one holy church is to remain forever. The church is the congregation of saints in which the gospel is purely taught and the sacraments are rightly administered. This means that as much as the church may seem to be in decline, she can't. Be in decline. In other words, the church is not dying and cannot die and will not die, if you can believe this. Uh, we, we look at our political situations and we look at these things and say, oh, you know, they're going to eradicate Christianity. It's never going to happen. Christ will return. Um, but it's never going to happen. The church will never die. Some, which, which means somewhere in the world, there is going to be a gathering of Christians who are hearing the pure word of God gathering around the sacrament somewhere in the world. That doesn't mean that this particular church will never die. It doesn't mean that uh, the, the, the congregation of saints here in Winter Garden that will never lose or do something financially dumb and then have to close our doors. That doesn't mean that. It means that universally... Uh, um, uh, uh, Throughout the world, throughout all time, there will always be a gathering of saints, even of two or three people gathered in his name. Um, So I want to make this distinction of the church and the congregation. So let me draw this up. Okay, so this is the ark, and uh, this is just a bunch of little churches. So that the scriptures present the church in two ways. One universally as the church, and then also like um, little, uh, little boats. Like each congregation, local congregation, is, is a little boat on its own. Um, maybe a better drawing is something like this. So that it looks like that. So that universally Catholic, uh, according to the whole, it is the church and individually their congregations locally. Um, And so what it means is that this altogether won't die, but these might. So there's going to be some boats or ships that are bigger than others, some that are smaller than others. So it doesn't mean that this congregation won't close. It may close. And then the saints here have to disperse and then go to another congregation and things like this. But overall, uh, the church um, overall will not die. So that will stay afloat. So that as, if, if you look at the church as the ark, uh, according to the whole, everyone together, then it will never sink. But if you look at it individually like this, yeah, one, one little boat might capsize. One little congregation might capsize, and then they just go to the next boat. But it will remain forever, right? This is the point, that churches will close, specific congregations will close because of bad financial management or a scandal or a fire or natural disaster, things like this. Um, But the church, capital C, will never die, no matter what happens or how bad it may appear. So... Our goal is not to try and save this, like save Christianity, as if God needs help. We're not trying to save the church throughout the world. He, we have a promise. And so that takes away the fear. Uh, we, we have to do our best to keep our little congregation afloat, to keep the doors open here. And the way you do that is by living within your means. That's all. Uh, if we can't afford something, then... We can't afford it. They'll live without it. If you can't afford it, then great. Um, but you live within your means. You don't, you don't just, you know, recklessly spend, uh, you know, try, trying to build something uh, so that people would come. You just build within your means. Okay. Um, so, so the application is that, yeah, Christ may take his gospel somewhere else. Luther often talked about this like a rain cloud uh, that, look, in Germany, it poured down rain of the gospel, Right, the, the floodgates of heaven were opened, and the gospel was being preached purely and beautifully there. Go to Germany now, and what do you see? Nothing. It's, it's empty. There are museums. Well, what happened? Well, what, what was Florida doing at the time? Did anyone here know the Did anyone in Winter Garden know the gospel? No. But that rain cloud has come, and now it's showering here. And then it may go. It may go away. It's come to the States and there's, we have a great Lutheran church and we see these things, but it may go away. And the United States may become like Europe. And now it's going to Africa or Brazil or things like this. But this is the point is that the, the gospel is traveling around in this way. Um, Okay. So with that being said, we're getting close to closing here. I want to talk about the approach So we talked about the motives. You want to have the right motive, and you don't want to do it out of insecurity, and you don't want to uh, uh, partake in outreach out of fear. And we're not doing it for the global church. We're doing it for the local church, even, uh, that it would be selfless for the neighbor. But now we say, well, how do we do this? How do we actually accomplish this as a congregation? What do do I do as a Christian? Uh, I'm going to show you what is, and then I'll tell you what isn't here. Yeah. Okay. So the, the way we do this, the way we engage in outreach is this way. First, well, I forget that the whiteboard doesn't have spell check uh, to uh, family. Uh, three and four is okay. So we would look at it this way. Uh, first is the congregation, or let me let me just write church. You might see it better. First, we begin in the church, and then with the family, and then with the straying, and then with the vocation. And this, it turns everything on its head, because every, every book you're going to read on outreach and evangelism and things like this, how, where do they begin? Sorry? Yeah, out here. They, they begin out here. So they begin at the farthest corners of the earth. Earth, And they say, well, there, that's what we want to do. We want to save those people. And then what's last? One of the last things is the church or the congregation or even the family. And we, the way Lutherans would understand this is according to the vocation that you start first in your own congregation. Um, and, and we'll talk about the logistics, why we start there as Lutherans. I'm not saying that this is what everyone has been doing, that Lutherans have been doing this. I'm just saying that this is what they should be doing. And we haven't. Most of our evangelism efforts have been um, starting out, outside. Um, and I'm not saying that that's not good to try and convert the, the world and, and start in these places uh, or to help them. But it's not where we start. There's, a, there's another place to start. And that is within the spheres of our life. So <clears throat> we begin with our own church home. And then we begin with our immediate family, your wife, your children, and then you grow up from there to extended family, to cousins and uh, aunts and uncles and, um, I, I don't know, all these different uh, relationships. And then you go to those who are straying from the congregation, those who have fallen away, and then finally to the world. Um, that this is then the approach that we ought to take. Uh, in the congregation, so, so the point is that you take care of what you have first and then go, go, go on. And I'll explain this. We'll elaborate on this later. But you start with the congregation because many people in this congregation are closer to you. Like when I first saw this, I'm like, wait, why is this, why is the church first, then the family second? Well, many people in the congregation are what? Closer to you than Family. Why? Because I have relatives who don't believe in Jesus. But you're a bunch of strangers who do. And I'm closer to you than I am to them. We have way more in common. We have, the, we have not just the same blood. We have the blood of Christ running through us. So we start here. And then, and then after the congregation, we, we start with this, this. Maybe you could call it in-reach. But there's outreach within the congregation Then the family. So that you would say, should I bother myself trying to convert the people in Papua New Guinea? Or should I talk to my wife who doesn't come to church with me? Should I talk to my son who hasn't been here or my daughter? Well, that's your priority. Because guess what? Who can go to Papua New Guinea? Everybody. Guess who is the mother or the father of your son? You, only you, and you, you are the only father to your children, and you're the only father who they will ever have. Uh, so you take up that vocation, and you start there. Um, yes, it's important. Think of the people of, of, of in Africa and everywhere in the world. Yes, we, we try to support these things, but first, God has called you immediately to your station in life. Okay, then from family, extended family, and then to the straying, and say, well, uh, Not only do I concern myself with my family and my congregation, but there are people who used to be here. There are people who were a part of here, who were sitting next to you in the pews, and they're not right now. What happened to them? Uh, So that, we should be concerned about them. To say, should should we help the people in Africa? Again, in Nigeria, yes, of course, there are brothers. But at the same time, you have, you're sending money overseas but you have brothers here right in the same pew who sat next to you who you know their names and you can call them and you can take care of them. Um, and then finally, the string, and then finally the vocation. And this is, or you could say your, your occupation um, in your workplace, where you work, uh, the people you, you're around, the people you uh, communicate with or friends and family, um, or sorry, the associates and uh, uh, you know, acquaintances, you can, you can, you to talk to them as well. So this is the approach that I'm presenting here is that we begin in this way and not the other way, which is on the outside and then, and then finally try and work in. We begin in and then we work out. Okay. Let me pause here